I suggested to you that um, this is a very critical chapter in the greater scheme of things, specifically the great scheme of redemption, because after the indication by God in the garden uh, concerning the coming of Christ, here we have another uh, reference to that uh, critical event. I suggested to you that when God spoke to Abraham, Abram at this point in his life, he's a citizen of Ur, and he's been raised in an idolatrous environment. His own father believed in many gods. But there was something about this man. I wish the Bible gave us more information about the formative influences on his life. But remember, faith comes by hearing the word of God. So God spoke to him. And he had a choice to make. Either believe it and obey or hear what God had to say and then reject it. Well, he, cho he chose to obey. And so you remember how um, the Hebrews writer put that, that when God spoke to him and told him to pack up his family and his belongings and exit his uh, home country, uh, he obeyed. That's the term that's used in Hebrews 11. He obeyed. And he went out not knowing where he was going. So I suggested to you that that was conversion day. That would be equivalent to, for us of coming up out of the waters of baptism. When God instructs us what to do and we submit to that, then... We have initial salvation, and then we continue to live a life of obedience. And that's what he did. And you remember, uh, we pointed out in those early verses that God gave these promises uh, to Abraham, critical promises. Of course, the uh, national promise, uh, I'll make out of your descendants, your genetic descendants, a great nation, uh, fulfilled with the development of the Israelites, consisting of 12 tribes of people. Uh, whose population got up to, what, at least two to three million people at various points in their history. And then he also uh, made the uh, promise that um, uh, Jesus would, in fact, be the ultimate outcome of uh, these descendants. And we, ha we really don't have that clarified for us until later. We have it repeated several times in the subsequent chapters. But it's really not till we get to the New Testament, and specifically... Uh, may I suggest to you Galatians 3.16 and the verses following that indicate uh, the term seed in the King James Version. I think the English Standard has offspring uh, where it becomes clear that it was the, the Jesus' physical body was a genetic descendant of uh, Abraham's physical body. And therefore, uh, when Jesus left the eternal realm and inhabited a physical body, which I think I mentioned to you, is specifically predicted in Hebrews chapter 10, which states that God prepared a body for Jesus to indwell. And there's the incarnation. And then, of course, um, uh, the idea that he would um, have uh, many, I said he had many descendants, so that they would grow into a nation, and that they would, he would be given land. And remember the Bible states that um, even though Abram transferred himself, he, he moved out of Ur and moved down to what was it, Haran, lived there for a while, and then eventually moved on down into Palestine and even purchased some real estate. Now, the Bible makes it clear that uh, God did not give him one foot of that land. That was all reserved for his genetic descendants which, of course, was fulfilled with the conquering of the land of Canaan in the book of Joshua. 
Well, you remember um, his brother dies, Abraham's brother dies, and so he takes in his nephew Lot. And in chapter 13, uh, their workers uh, cannot get along with each other, so being the generous uncle I think that Abram was, he uh, offered for Lot to select whatever property, real estate he wanted to go uh, toward, and then uh, he would go the other direction. And so Lot, I think selfishly, uh, chose the more fertile areas of the plain. And in the intervening chapters from chapter 13 to chapter 19, we find that Lot, even though chapter 13 says he pitched his tent toward Sodom, that means in the direction of perhaps as far as, but in chapter 19 he's moved his entire family right into Sin City. In those intervening chapters after a, a, a circumstance in chapter 14 and chapter 15, you remember God uh, interacts with him a bit and re reconfirms the, uh, the covenant, even to the point where uh, it's obvious that Abram believes that God is going to give him a descendant, but it just was not happening. And so at that point, he suggested to God that perhaps Eliezer would be a suitable uh, heir of his. Uh, Eliezer being the head steward of the family estate and so forth, uh, childless couples typically in antiquity could do that, uh, find uh, you know, the leading uh, manager of the estate and turn their inheritance over to him. And God said no. And so in chapter 16, that's when his wife suggests that they need to select a surrogate mother. You know, as a child, that just sounded so bizarre to me. And then I lived through the 60s and found out that surrogate uh, mothers is not that uncommon a thing. It in fact became faddish in our country where a husband and wife would select a woman to carry their child. And we go back to 2100 B.C. culture and find that that was the case there. Uh, when a childless couple had no heir, they could select a surrogate mother who would then uh, serve, the offspring would serve as the legal heir. It was a legal thing, uh, even in their ancient governmental system. And so you remember they select uh, the Egyptian uh, handmaid, Hagar, to produce this heir. And Ishmael is born. And uh, in chapter 17, but once a God, uh, notice that God's not uh, talking with Abraham every day. We, we might get the idea sometimes in Bible history that there was just constant miraculous vision and intervention. There wasn't. Uh, he was 75 when he left uh, his uh, hometown. And it was, uh, he was, what, 86 the next time God spoke to him? And that's when he said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. That is, that he might be the designated, stipulated heir that, we, that you promised uh, would enable the, this promise to be fulfilled. And God said no. In fact, God became more specific. For the first time he said, this child will come not only from your body. See, he'd already made that clear. But he explicitly said, this child will come from the body of your wife. He had not said that before. So we might think that Abraham was kind of bouncing through those years, not really convinced. He was. He was convinced God was going to fulfill the promise, but God had not uh, designated with specificity that it would be his wife, Sarah. And he said it'll be, in fact... Uh, you know, in about a year that this is going to happen. In chapter 17, he renews the covenant again and institutes the um, custom of um, circumcision.
for male infants on the eighth day after birth. You know, we at AP have done a lot of research on that uh, concept of, uh, of a surgical procedure on a male infant. Uh, why eight days? You know, why eight days after birth? And the Bible, so far as I know, gives no explanation in the Old or the New Testament. And this may not be the reason, <clears throat> but we do know from medical research that uh, when an infant is born, uh, the clotting factor in their bloodstream, uh, which has been designated uh, after research that was done by a professor, this is all on our website, uh, back in the 30s. In fact, he shared the Nobel Prize for his discoveries that this uh, coagulating uh, factor, in fact, he, he was Danish, so he named it vitamin K because coagulation in, in uh, Danish language begins with a K. And that is the factor that causes your blood to clot. And when an infant is born, uh, they're low on that initially. And so if there were any sort of a you know, surgical procedure, if the child was injured and lost blood, it would be difficult to get that blood to clot. And it's only um, about the fourth through the seventh day that the, that little body begins to kick in and start producing that. And um, uh, researchers have found that it's only on the, the eighth day after birth that the clotting factor uh, increases to above 100% of its normal amount. And it's really the only day in the life of a newborn male where that occurs. And so if you were going to perform surgery on a male infant in antiquity, the eighth day would be the day to do it. Now, is that the reason that God stipulated that? I don't guess we could know for sure, uh, but those are actual medical facts uh, on the matter. So you remember uh, he required his entire uh, male population of his estate to undergo that uh, surgical procedure. And that became, therefore, for his descendants and the nation of Israel, the uh, key indicator of their, the fact that they were part of the covenant. It's not the moment that they became part of the covenant. They were born into the covenant genetically by being descendants of Abraham. Uh, people who go to... Uh, the New Testament and try to argue that baptism is equivalent to circumcision. And therefore, the denominations say baptism is no more essential to salvation than circumcision was to be an Israelite. You were born an Israelite. Your birth came before your circumcision. And therefore, you're born again in Christ before you're baptized. But the Bible not only does not make that comparison whatsoever, it actually goes out of its way to debunk that comparison. When in Colossians chapter 2, you remember uh, Paul likened uh, baptism to circumcision, not in terms of uh, that connection to uh, Judaism and its uh, timing factor, but in terms of what it did. Circumcision literally cut off flesh. That's what that surgical procedure did. And he makes the point there that that's what baptism does. But it doesn't cut off uh, skin, it cuts off sin. Colossians chapter 2, 12 and following. That's the point the Holy Spirit makes on that matter. Well, you remember then after uh, chapter 17, we moved to chapter 18, and here we are uh, with uh, Lot and his family in Sodom itself. And uh, <clears throat> God uh, 
Abraham uh, has a conversation with God on the matter uh, because God sends these angelic representatives uh, to inform him that God is going to destroy uh, Sodom and the other four cities of the plain because of their wickedness. And uh, Abraham asks uh, this question, uh, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Uh, these questions that uh, Frank is uh, recalling for us in this outstanding series that he's doing, uh, these questions that, as he said, are so brief, so concise, pungent, they come right from God's heart and hit, hit, hit us pretty hard. And that would be one of them. You know, what's the answer to that? These are rhetorical questions. Well, of course. God has always done right. He's never done wrong. And he's never mistreated anybody or been unkind or unjust to anybody. Never. And so Abraham says, well, okay, then if there are, you know, 50 righteous people left in, in this city, will you spare the city? God said, I will. Well, what about 45? Yes, I will. 40? Yes. 30? Yes. 20? Yes. 10? If there are just 10, will you spare the city? And God said, I will. And then Abraham terminated the conversation. I'm not sure why. I guess he thought there were at least 10. But when you turn the page to chapter 19, there weren't. Even among Lot's own family, it's clear uh, that a number have become so indulgent and so embedded in that wicked culture that they were not really interested in pursuing God. And so you remember what happened when uh, God sent those angelic beings to warn uh, Lot and to try to get him uh, to come, and he hesitated, and they grabbed him, gripped him by the arm, and started pulling on him, tugging on him, and finally got him outside the city. And God uh, caused it to rain down out of the atmosphere, burning sulfur that completely obliterated uh, that city and three of the others. Uh, so much so that even today, archaeologists disagree among themselves as to the original locations of those cities. They think they are in the vicinity of the Dead Sea, which is surely not coincidental. The Dead, the Dead Sea is called dead because nothing grows in it or lives in it. And uh, all in that area are, are tremendous sulfuric deposits. They think maybe even a couple of these cities are beneath the Dead Sea, completely covered over by water. But that was an actual historical event, not a fable. It really happened. And I would suggest to you that it's happened on other occasions. That God is not obligated to explain anything to us, let alone report to you and me everything that he's ever done in human history. Have they found locations of the world that are uh, desolated? I mean desolated. Yes, there are many. You know, take some of these deserts like the Sahara and some of these other deserts. You know, environmentalists come along and say, well, you know, they, they uh, didn't grow grass and they mistreated the environment. Not necessarily. There are desolated places that are linked up with wickedness. For example, down in South America, uh, there was an ancient civilization known as the Nazca, and they've, they've investigated them. Of course, they, they didn't know that they existed for a long time because the area was desolated. It didn't look like anything ever lived there or grew there. And they began digging around and found that this civilization was rather advanced. There was evidence of brain surgery. Uh, back nearly 2,000 years ago, they had... Uh, implemented uh, hot air balloon flight. They had very sophisticated agricultural procedures. And, uh, and yet, it was, it was very clear very quickly 
that they were immoral and wicked sexually and in, in many other ways perverted? Well, Christians would look at that. They would look at who is God, what's he like, how's he conducted himself in history, and then look at that and say, well, I can see why the place has been desolated. And may I suggest to you it's probably happened many times in human history. And Americans and people today on the planet are foolish and, and ignorant if they think the same God is not uh, operating today. I'm not suggesting that he would send fire down out of the atmosphere, per se. But God's ha God has ways of punishing peoples, many different arsenals in his tools and weapons of uh, dealing with man's sin. And he has no doubt done it many times before. So that's a very tragic and sad circumstance in Bible history. And while the Sodomites were guilty of many sins, Ezekiel and Jeremiah both indicate that. The one that clearly stands out when we're first told about this population in Genesis 19 is same-sex relations, homosexuality. I mean, that's, how can you miss that? And uh, when Jude finally comes, you know, a lot of, uh, this event was so uh, traumatic to uh, human consciousness, cultural consciousness, that they continued to talk about that for centuries. And you come all the way down to Jude, the second of the last book of the New Testament, and he points at that and he says, you know, this, is, uh, this was kind of a prefiguring of hell. In the same way that God sent fire down and just obliterated, don't tell on how many people, how many inhabitants in those cities? Uh, the same thing is going to happen in the sense that uh, hell itself will be a, a type or form of some, some type of spiritual fire or something that will enable people to be tormented and punished uh, for all of eternity. And he identifies in that book, Jude, that their sin was going after strange flesh. That's the terminology that he uses. Well, what does he mean by that? He means males uh, pursuing males and females pursuing females in a sexual way. Uh, that is strange, remember, is the word that means, uh, actually the Greek underlying word is other, other flesh. Another way to probably translate that to get more at it is alternative. They were going after alternative flesh, human flesh, not angelic flesh. The angels appeared to be humans. And so this, this is very serious to God. And here, here, all these centuries later, Jude says, man, you need to think about this because uh, that, that kind of thing is what's going to come up on the day of judgment and when God will usher the majority of all of humanity into an eternal hell. What a, what a tragic moment in Bible history. Well, in chapter uh, 21, the long-awaited child of promise is finally born. Um, Sarah uh, says that, um, you know, who would have thought that I would be permitted at my age to have this kind of joy, uh, that God would uh, create laughter for me? So that's what uh, she names the boy. Isaac uh, literally in Hebrew means he laughs. And uh, that's in chapter 21. Well, in chapter 22, God says, now I want you to take him out and kill him. Now, you know, there have been all these years uh, that God has uh, really going all the way back to 75. So we're talking about 25 years, quarter of a century 
that it finally comes true. He finally gets this child of promise, and then God says, take him out and kill him. And may I suggest to you that uh, there are little textual indicators that would suggest that uh, uh, this boy was not, Isaac was not a young child, you know, like two, three, four, five, or six, or something like that. In fact, the same term is used to refer to him that's used to refer to the, the servants that accompany Abraham and uh, Isaac uh, in order to offer him as a sacrifice. So I'm thinking, you know, teens at least, and perhaps even in his 20s, maybe even as old as 30. We don't know. The Bible doesn't say. But we just tend to put our pictures in our VBS uh, things and so forth as kind of a, a little boy. But that's really not, I don't think, substantiated by the text. Now remember, by this time, God has altered uh, Abram's name, Abram, Avram, which means uh, exalted father, to Avraham, which means father of many. And yet, uh, true to uh, his indications of faith that we've already seen manifested in his life, uh, he chooses to do exactly what God do, said to do. He, he made all the preparations, went to the location that God designated, and prepared to kill this boy. You know, I was recently in a conversation uh, that um, pointed out that skeptics would say, this, this in and of itself, this one incident is sufficient to dismiss the Bible and to declare the God of the Bible to be a, uh, an ogre, an immoral being, uh, who would tell a man to, to go kill his son. Well, you and I need to think through that somewhat. Um, <clears throat> there are many indications that you and I would completely agree with where our, we should consent to the death of our children. Uh, for example, God enjoins the death penalty for certain actions. And it is right and just and in complete harmony with the will of God uh, for the death penalty to be carried out, implemented, and imposed on those who, who do things that are worthy of death, even if it's your own child. So you would consent to that kind of child sacrifice, would you not, in order to be pleasing to God? It's also astounding. See, there's something else going here, going on here, something much deeper than just a surface, Abraham, offer your son. Uh, Jesus, you see, did this very, or God did this very thing. He sacrificed his son. Was that an immoral action on the part of God? Was God immoral for uh, condoning and even uh, consenting to and even planning, pre-planning and implementing the sacrifice of his child? Well, you and I can see, no, that, that was not an immoral act. It was a completely selfless, a deeply loving thing that extends beyond um, what we could do. Now, uh, granted, uh, this was consensual. Over and over the New Testament says that Jesus gave himself. It was a, a willing, free decision that he made. And it's interesting that... Um, Isaac manifested that kind of an attitude. Uh, he was a little bit uncertain about the situation. Whenever Abraham got all the preparations made, he said, where's the sacrifice? You know, and, and Abraham said, well, God will provide that. But even after he gets the boy all tied up and set on, on the wood, it's pretty obvious he's the sacrifice. And yet apparently made no effort to uh, uh, refuse the necessity of the matter. Something else that, uh, there are other little indicators that tell us that there's something deeper going on here. Have you noticed in the text, for example, that we are 
even though Abraham travels some distance, we are told this area where he now is to offer the, his son as stipulated by God. And the terminology is Mount Moriah. Did you pick up on that? And that's precisely the terminology that's used to refer to the temple platform under Judaism and where uh, in, in Jerusalem in the New Testament, uh, in the vicinity of where Jesus was offered for us. Surely that's not accidental or coincidental. Uh, nor is it uh, accidental or coincidental that uh, on this historical occasion, uh, whenever he prepares to go through with the execution of his son, God stays his arm and substitutes in place of the boy a ram. You know, a ram is a lamb. And the text goes out of its way to tell us that this ram has been caught in a thicket by its thorns, its, its uh, horns, its head. Is that too coincidental? That just before Jesus himself, as a lamb, was offered as a substitute for us, he had a crown of thorns pressed down upon his head. Surely. See, this is just like God. The Bible's filled with this kind of thing because God, being eternal and eternal mind, was able through hundreds, thousands of years of human history to bring all of these little indicators up and only by people that are devoted to studying the Bible and seeing that we're looking at the mind of God here. And rather than take a superficial surface uh, examination of Scripture to dig into it and see all of this abundant evidence of inspiration and how God had pre-planned in eternity before he ever created the universe to bring about our salvation. And here it is being displayed in the life of a man in 2100. We're talking over 4,000 years ago. Uh, this incident occurred that screams pre-planning by God in the anticipation of the supreme and ultimate event of all of human history and what God did for us. In chapter 23, Sarah comes to the end of her life. Uh, she is 127. Now remember, Abraham is out of his home environment. He's in a foreign land. Uh, there, there, are not, there are no funeral homes like we have in our culture. So he has to make provision for the uh, uh, disposition of her body. So he, he cuts a deal with some of the locals. They're called the sons of Heth and purchases a piece of real estate that's described as wooded and had situated at uh, one end of that uh, piece of property a cave, the cave of Machpelah. This would serve as the family entombment plot, not only for his wife Sarah, but for several generations thereafter of his descendants. Well, then you remember um, that um, Abraham, I suppose, is concerned about Isaac uh, Isaac's about, uh, what, 40 years old, and he's not married, and so he would like to get the boy kind of settled before he himself uh, comes to the end of his life. So you remember he selected a trusted uh, steward within his estate to go all the way back to their ancestral homeland and there to secure a wife for his son. Now imagine how... <laughs> Uh, that task. You've got to go all the way what, uh, convince a woman who, by the way, is described as beautiful to travel basically over 500 miles and to, to come and marry a man that she's never even met or seen. 
But he, uh, he accomplishes that, uh, undoubtedly from the text, through the intervention of God, the non-miraculous providential intervention of God, and brings her back. And uh, that next chapter concludes informing us that uh, Isaac was comforted at the death of his mother uh, by this marriage to Rebekah. Well, you remember they're married uh, for, what, some 20 years or so, no children. Uh, especially in ancient times, this was very tormenting to a woman. Uh, maybe so today. I guess women differ on that. But uh, in, in ancient, ancient cultures, it appears that it was a very, very a critical thing for a woman to produce children and to fail to do so uh, would uh, torment them. Remember, that was the case, for example, with Samuel's mother over in 1 Samuel chapter 1. And um, so Jacob gets involved in the situation and prays to God and begs God uh, that uh, she be allowed to have uh, children. And you better be careful what you pray for. She became pregnant with uh, twins. And you remember when the first little guy was born, um, he, he had hair all over his body. You know, we've seen kids with a full crop of hair on top, maybe deep black hair and it's thick, you know. This little guy was hairy all over, so that's what they named him, Harry. That's the meaning of the word Esau. And then, if that's not odd enough, um, the, the second boy is born and he's clutching the heel of his big brother. So that's what they named him, Yaakov, Jacob, which in Hebrew means a heel grabber or uh, something along that line. And it has kind of a euphemistic meaning of uh, deceiver. In other words, somebody that would come up behind you, you know, and grab you by the heel is a con man and a deceiver type person. And so that's the name that he lived with. And we see this played out. Uh, we're not told much about their childhood, but as they're... Uh, have moved into uh, probably manhood, maybe 20s, I don't, we're not told. You remember Esau has become an outdoorsman. He likes, you know, to hunt and fish and go out and, and be gone for days at a time, whereas Jacob's more of a mama's boy, stays around the tent. He's learned how to cook. And nothing wrong with for men to learn how to cook, but that's Jacob. And um, one day Esau comes in from an extended hunting tour. He's famished, and he thinks he's going to die of starvation, which you and I know is not true. And as a result, he approaches his little brother who's cooking up a pot of stew and, and a typical conversation between boys. Notice that human being, human nature doesn't change. People are people. Uh, he says, give me some of that. No, why should I? You know, what are you going to give me? Well, what do you want? Well, I want the birthright. And in that culture, that society, uh, which really goes, I think, all the way down, all the way back to the garden and God's intention uh, for the Hebrews in particular, but uh, primogenitor it's called. That's where the firstborn son is the appropriate one to receive the birthright. And he was willing to sell that. And again, you and I don't have any ability to assess that unless God tells us. And he tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16, when he says that Esau was a profane man. Profanity is where you take something that ought to be held in high regard and should be honored and revered and treated as if it doesn't matter. It's not that important. That's profanity. So when people in American culture have become so accustomed 
on a daily basis of taking God's name in vain, saying, oh my God. You can't turn on the television or even walk out in public without hearing people say that. And think nothing of it. And if you were to ask them, what were you thinking about when you said that? And no doubt they would, they would admit it wasn't God. <laughs> they weren't thinking about God. They were, it was just a way to say something because something has bothered you and you're, you're shocked or surprised. Well, that is a vain, flippant, uh, meaningless, thoughtless use of the name of God. And you remember under the law of Moses, God spoke very directly about that. And you and I might think, well, that's law of Moses. Well, there are many things in the law of Moses that are of an eternal nature. And how you treat God and how you use his name is an ongoing matter. And on that occasion, what in... in uh, Exodus 19, he said, I will not hold him guiltless who takes my name in vain. That's a, you know, a startling declaration. And yet, how many Americans have any clue about that, or, or even if you told them, would care? It's almost as if they think God's not a real being who's listening and hearing and seeing them every day. Yeah, but he is, and... Uh, we show reverence to God and honor to God and humility to God by using his name carefully and holding it in high regard. So what was it that Esau did? It wasn't his misuse of God's name. It was his misuse of the birthright, which he should have held in higher esteem and higher regard than his feelings that I'm about to starve to death. In other words, he was putting his physical, fleshly concerns, um, what would you say, that's tugging on him. I'm hungry. I've got to have something to eat. And placing that as of greater importance than this really spiritual, moral concern with regard to the positioning of what, where he was in the family and what he was to expect. You know, this was the uh, perhaps premier sin that plagued the Israelites out of Egypt. And it's brought up over and over and over and over. You know, they whined about food and drink, and, uh, and it was, you know, that, that caused God ultimately to say, uh, man doesn't live by food alone. Did God create your body where you have to have food or you'll die? Yeah, he created it that way. But that's not all there is to life, and it's not even a prominent part of life. What should be prominent and, and most pressing is that we are to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. What is that, Deuteronomy 6? And that, there was Esau's problem. He put his stomach over his, um, the, the higher, more um, significant, primary concerns of life. Now I'm telling you, that's something that hits all of us every day. It hits all of us every day. And it's so easy to allow the flesh, which is constantly asserting itself in our lives, our aches, our pains, our hunger, all the things that, are, that inconvenience us in life, can crowd out keeping a central focused um, emphasis in our lives on who God is, how he wants me to conduct myself, what he wants me to be doing uh, in regard to other people. And you just see this illustrated over and over and over. And God was not pleased with that boy. 
for putting his stomach over his, uh, his belly, as uh, Paul said in Romans 16, over his higher spiritual concerns. Well, um, then, of course, after his, his stomach was full, that irritated because Jacob, you know, made that kind of a deal as if he didn't decide to do it. And it wasn't, I suppose, that much longer uh, after that event that it came time to bestow the family blessing. Notice that's different from the birthright, both of which to be bestowed only upon the firstborn son. Well, this time Jacob, in league with his mother, <laughs> conspires to swindle Esau out of the blessing. And remember the fur thing and the smell and all of that to, to accomplish that. And they, and they accomplish it. And um, boy, at that point, Esau is mad, mad enough to kill his brother. In fact, he entertains murderous thoughts and makes plans to do so. Uh, when Rebecca finds out about it, she goes to Jacob and says, your brother is mad. You need to uh, hightail it out of here for a few days until his fury subsides. And so in obedience to his mother, he packed up and left. But instead of being gone for a few days, that's what the text says, for 20 years, 20 years. That would be a good place, I think, for us to pause. And Lord willing, we'll pick up there and see how these exploits occur in Jacob's life that, again, spotlight redemptive history. God's not just given us, not just given us history about people. He's giving us the preparations, the circumstances that are pointing down the corridors of time to the ultimate culmination of atonement and um, how that then results in the establishment of the church itself. If you need to respond to the gospel invitation tonight through faith, repentance, confession, baptism in water for the remission of sins, you can do that. Or if you need to come before the church and make correction publicly, you can do that as well. Let's stand and sing together. Till the spirit shall depart, then you'll see your sad condition. Unprepared to meet thy God, careless soul, oh, heed the warning for your life will soon be gone. Oh, how sad to face the judgment. Unprepared to meet thy God. Please be seated. 